we have been commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations. But discipleship begins first within our home. It can be extremely difficult to raise competent and compassionate Jesus followers in our egocentric, on-demand world. It's easy to feel completely overwhelmed and unqualified for the job. Yet Jesus' call remains, requiring us to get off the bench and get in the game by being intentional about discipling the hearts in our home. Today on Bloom, we'll take a look at practical and effective truths to disciple our kids in Christ, living in our post-Christian culture. I'm your host, Jennifer Robinson, for February 3rd, 2023. Welcome to Bloom. This is a podcast designed to inspire, encourage, and grow women in their relationships with each other and the Lord. In case you missed last month, for a quick recap, we began discussing discipleship by focusing on the common distractions in our home, the time traps, and subtle wedges that diminish an environment of discipleship. The three major subtle wedges we tackled are busy schedules, which means less time, technology, which means less engagement, and finally, more space between us, meaning bigger houses, less time spent in common areas, and this ultimately results in less interaction. Average households are dealing with at least one, but most likely battling all three of these wedges simultaneously, which is a scary reality. We are raising our kids in a culture that feeds off these very three things and craves more of it. Discipleship requires us to push back against the natural tendency of cultural influence by simplifying our schedules, reducing mindless use of technology, and spending more intentional time together. So the other day, Jesse and I were talking about the kids' birthdays coming up and the reality that our daughter is going to be an official teenager this year hit me hard in that moment. And it's not like it was a shock or an unexpected surprise. In a lot of ways, it already feels like she is a teen. But for some reason, the numerical acknowledgement hit me differently in our conversation. I told Jesse her turning 13 means we have five more years before she is a legal adult. Five more years before she could leave home and go off to college. Now, five years might sound like a long time, but I have always felt that parent years are similar to dog years in the sense that time somehow seems to move at a much faster rate than the rest of reality. When my kids were two and four, I felt like I had all the time in the world to disciple them. And it's not to say that I was passive or nonchalant about teaching them, but there is a greater sense of urgency as you watch your kids entering into a pivotal time in their lives, as they're learning how to live in a culture that is increasingly growing more hostile towards their Christian roots. It's a time when they are transitioning from formulating and considering their personal beliefs and solidifying them. It's a time when they determine what defines their true identity and what they have been created for. Time has a tendency of being like a nonstop flight. You can't stop or slow down time. All we can do is practice genuine intentionality regardless of how much or how little time we have. But no matter where you find yourself on this journey, there are helpful tools to help us navigate shepherding our kids. So today we're going to discuss and unpack five practical and effective truths on discipleship. 
Now you might be holding your newborn right now or you might have a house of high schoolers. But discipleship, no matter what age your kids are, begins the same. Discipling our kids begins first by recognizing who our kids really belong to. We might be entrusted with the responsibility to train, lead, and prepare our kids for living like Christ, but our kids belong first and foremost to God. I think Hannah was a beautiful example of this. Hannah is often remembered for her prayer. You might be familiar with Hannah's prayer. She was barren and prayed to God to give her a child, and he answered her prayer in a mighty way. When she gave birth to her son Samuel, Hannah quickly acknowledged who he belonged to. Hannah said, I asked him for this child, and he gave me what I asked for. So I am dedicating him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he will belong to the Lord. Now you may have carried your little one in your belly for nine months, but it was God who knitted them together. It is God who planned the purpose for your child's life. It is God who has written each moment of each day for your kids. So when we recognize that our kids belong first to God, we reap two benefits. First, we prioritize that our children were made to bear the image of their creator, not us. Even if their features resemble us and they have our personality quirks, we are still the created. We're not the creator. This shifts our focus to lead our kids to look like Jesus and not us. Second, it distributes the weight of knowing that God is ultimately writing their story and knows the plans he has for them. He is sovereignly in control and divinely knows what's best for them above what we might even believe is best. The second truth is similar to number one in a sense. Your discipleship journey with your child begins with first recognizing who they belong to, but the second truth is like it. And that is, you have access to the Holy Spirit who empowers you. And discipling our kids is a tall order. Let's be honest about that. But God did not leave us helpless or without resource to navigate it. In John chapter 14, it says, The Spirit of truth dwells with you and in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The problem is, we easily forget that we have this amazing helper who is not only with us, but within us. How often do we get frustrated in our parenting that we throw our hands up or we look to Google to help us figure something out when the Holy Spirit is always readily available to guide us? When we live in cooperation with the Spirit, He will direct us in what our kids need. Do they need encouraging affirmation? Do they need firm correction? And not only will He show us what they need, but He will teach us how to communicate effectively in a way that speaks personally and directly to them. I came across this open letter by author J. Ryan Lister about feeling unequipped to disciple our kids. Have you ever felt that way before? I think if we were honest, we all felt like we were unequipped to really effectively disciple our kids. Lister writes, Discipleship isn't easy. It isn't something we just do naturally because the whole concept of discipleship centers on the supernatural. That's why discipleship isn't something that we master. It's about the master mastering us. It is a unique call from a supernatural source to do what we would never naturally do on our own. Discipleship is an imperative. It comes from Jesus' command, follow me. That is why none of us, not even the first disciples themselves, felt perfectly equipped to be disciples. 
Because discipleship is not just something we do, it's something that is done to us. So though it may not feel this way, this insecurity is actually good news. It puts the hope and power of discipleship not on the disciples, but on the master. It says our actions are only as good as the one we choose to follow. Don't put so much pressure on yourself with the notion that you are alone in this. That discipleship is entirely up to you. The Spirit is leading us and discipling us in our journey as well. And as the Holy Spirit works in you, and as you disciple your kids, remember, He's working in your kids as well. The third truth in discipling your kids is set realistic expectations. When you find yourself, like I was the other day, considering how fast time is moving and contemplating how can we be more intentional, more effective, and more consistent with discipling our kids, you might enter panic mode. And when you enter panic mode or you just feel this incredible weight that the responsibility holds, it becomes very easy to set unrealistic expectations. I remember when our kids were little and I was a young mom, eager to have morning devotions as part of our routine. Jesse would head off to work in the morning as I would be serving the kids breakfast. And right when breakfast was done, it was my plan to sit down and do our devotions together. I had painted this picture-perfect image in my mind of exactly what this would look like. I'm sipping my morning coffee while the kids sit compliantly next to me, fully engaged and submersed in my reading, asking thought-provoking questions that would obviously prove their intellect was well beyond their years. Then we would close with hands folded, reverently praying. The sun would just be shining in through the window. You get the picture. Then I met reality. I began reading Psalms from my trusty, worn-in, women-of-faith NIV Bible halfway through the second verse. My almost four-year-old was asking every question she could think of, only not really related to anything I was reading. Mom, when can we play with stuffed animals? Mom, why aren't there any pictures? Mom, I'm thirsty. Can I just have juice? Just then, my 18-month-old son, feeling the need to contribute in some way, casually began to fill his pants. You know, looking back, I can laugh about it, but in the moment, it felt like the textbook definition of defeat. And as I changed one of the many diapers I would inevitably change that day, I slowly felt my frustration lessen, and I began mentally collecting myself I began registering that maybe reading phrases like, Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, wasn't quite resonating with an audience whose current must-reads were Llama Llama, Red Pajama, and The Very Hungry Caterpillar. So I instantly reevaluated and adjusted my expectations. Some simple adjustments were obvious. I needed a Bible that would be engaging to my kids, something with pictures and more kid-friendly verbiage. I also learned that devotions in the morning, right after breakfast, when they were at their peak in energy, was not a good timing if I wanted them to actually pay attention. So instead, I switched to reading before naps or bedtime so my kids could settle in and focus on what I was saying. And as they've grown, schedules have changed. 
and our lives have become busier. I've had to make new adjustments again and again. The concept of having daily family devotions sounds like a great plan, but you might realize that maybe having family devotions every night is just not doable when the kids become involved in sports and extracurriculars. In this season, what we found that works for our family is to have designated family devotions once a week. And then during the week, we encourage our kids to read devotions on their own, either ones that we've purchased for them or ones they find on their Bible app. And as they're getting older and more independent, we want them to begin making the individual choice and effort to make time for God, but still following through each week together as a family. Now, there will always be new ebbs and flows as your kids get older, but a great evaluating question we can ask ourselves is, is this sustainable? In other words, have you created a structure that is conducive to be easily repeated? You know, part of that is setting realistic expectations for your kids and yourself. When we aren't realistic, we can get quickly discouraged when we fail to meet those set expectations. But let's also be careful. Being realistic is not a means of excuse either. Now remember in part one, when we discuss the subtle wedge of busy schedules, we have to set aside time for our family to engage together in prayer and be in the word. Why? Because it trains our kids to understand the necessity and value of setting aside time with God. When they are young, they might be receiving truth in small bite-sized pieces, like a scripture snack, so to speak. But then as they get older and all these other activities and technology are vying for their attention, we need to demonstrate the discipline of consistent time with God each day. Then over time, that discipline becomes a desire. And that is when your kids' appetite for God increases on their own and they crave more spiritual meat and potatoes over spiritual goldfish crackers and fruit snacks. Now, the fourth truth of discipleship is probably one of my favorites and maybe the most underrated. And that is, discipleship is not a curriculum. It's a way of life. Not just something to be exemplified, but normalized. Western culture is all about education. We emphasize the value of learning. But our version of learning requires you to invest in books and a computer, take out student loans to go to school, where you write papers and take assessments to prove your understanding of the material. But in Jewish culture, rabbinic teaching was not done in a classroom setting. Jesus didn't hand the disciples his class syllabus tablet and say, here, just read this and I'll test you later. Yes, the disciples were students, but they were ultimately studying Jesus, observing how Jesus lived, listening to what Jesus said. Because in Jewish culture, discipleship was a relationship between a disciple and the rabbi. More specifically, it was an invitation from the rabbi to the disciple to follow them, which means that they learn by watching how the rabbi lived and interacted. So as the disciple would observe his teacher's lifestyle, they would pay close attention to his every word of instruction so they could repeat what was modeled and spoken to them. I cannot emphasize enough how much our kids are watching us. They absorb what they see and hear us do, and then it recycles in their behavior, choices, and actions. 
My husband Jesse has a phrase he often uses when it comes to his football players or to our own kids, and it's a great sounding board. He says, the actions you see are either taught or allowed. Think about that. The actions you see are either taught or allowed. So the responses your children have to adversity, their initial reaction when something doesn't go their way, that is either a learned behavior or it has been a permitted behavior. Our kids have other influences in their lives. We definitely can't deny that. There's school teachers, peers, guidance counselors, coaches, all who contribute to their personal and spiritual development. But we are always on the front lines of influence that shape them shape their beliefs, their values, and their self-image. So what is your life teaching them? What example do they see that they will in turn be following and repeating? I'm not referring to the occasional slips you have because of your humanity. There will be moments, several in fact, where your kids will witness your mistakes firsthand. But what are the daily patterns, habits, and responses that your kids consistently see over again? Yes, you might have gotten frustrated when your kids were fighting over the TV and you raised your voice. Ask yourself, though, do your kids consistently witness you raise your voice in response to your frustrations, or do they more often see you demonstrate a sense of calmness, even when your patience is being tested? Do they hear you listening more to Elevation Worship when you're driving in the car or Beyonce? Do they often experience you telling them to get off their phones or iPads, even though you can't seem to peel yourself away from your Twitter feed and your Instagram reels? Do your kids witness you splurge on a new designer purse and treat yourself to a spa pedicure, but you can't remember the last time you tithed? Whether our kids intend to or not, they are constantly taking mental notes on what they are hearing and seeing from us. The patterns and habits in our lives are sending a direct message to them. What message are you sending? What patterns, habits, and behaviors are you modeling? Let your kids hear you talk about Jesus. Let them see you reading your Bible in the morning. Let your kids know when you are spending alone time with God. Let them see you serve out of kindness and giving out of a generous heart. Those are patterns that should be the common threads of our daily life that they will repeat. And that brings us to our fifth and final truth. The fifth truth of discipling our kids is create a secure and loving space to grow. Sounds pretty common and obvious and simple, doesn't it? Kids have a deep need for security and acceptance. Now, this has always been the case for kids, but it's not surprising facts from a new study or anything. But as we are raising kids in a post-Christian culture, providing them with a space that is inviting and nurturing is incredibly essential, more so now than ever. Now, I don't want you to interpret safe to mean soft. Yes, we want home to be a soft landing for our kids when they come in from the outside, but creating a home where they feel loved and genuinely safe is also a home where we can speak truth and challenge them in a way they understand is coming from an authentic place. Just like the comparison Paul made when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he said he was nurturing like a mother and challenging like a father. Our homes provide that healthy balance of nurture 
and challenge. In contrast, the easily offendable world we live in is very different. The culture wants to convey a message of inclusion, but there's a catch. While the world wants to convince our kids that they are accepted just as they are, there is an agenda at play. Now, this agenda is luring our kids into aligning with the beliefs and values that flow in the current of culture. And if you dare to challenge that culture, then you will not be accepted. And God's word proves to be a little too restrictive towards the value system of society. But in our homes, it isn't about an agenda. There's an assignment that we've been given. An assignment to disciple our kids in sound doctrine. We're teaching our kids how to live as followers of Jesus as they are growing up in the modern world. The world's thematic message that everyone is accepted is really appealing to a demographic who is in the crux of understanding who they are and what their purpose in life is. The culture is preaching a doctrine that says because you are accepted, you are loved. What a sneaky tactic. Jesus, on the other hand, says, because you are loved, you are accepted. And the order of that verbiage matters here. Instead of emphasizing accepted, we emphasize love. In truth and love, you can challenge someone not living within God's standards. But in acceptance, challenge equates to being unloving. God's message of because you are loved, you are accepted is clearly spoken in the first chapter of Ephesians. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. First loved, then accepted by adoption into his family. Why does the order matter? Because even when our kids make choices or have behavior that is not in alignment to God's word, they will know it does not negate love. What is most important is that our kids know they are loved. Real, meaningful discipleship with our kids can only happen when we are demonstrating that we love our kids. When our kids are small, they know we are a safe place because we are the first responders when they fall off their bikes. We are the ones caring for them when they're sick or we're the ones holding them when they feel afraid. But as they grow older and seasons change, they may not feel the need to run to you when they need a band-aid, but they do feel safe coming to you about a problem that they are having with a friend. Or can they ask What is the meaning of an explicit word they heard from an older peer? Or tell you about a new crush that they have? These conversations require a level of comfortability and security in the person your child confides in. Our kids should feel comfortable coming to us with their thoughts, ideas, doubts, and inquisitions. Consider this. If your kids feel they can't approach you, where will they go? That leaves them with two likely options their friends, or more likely, the internet. And those are the two most common places to seek clarity and answers. When we cultivate a home that promotes open lines of communication and welcomes even the most challenging and uncomfortable conversations, our kids feel loved and secure. And only in this environment can we have the greatest opportunity to speak truth and disciple them well. Jesus wasn't afraid to have the hard conversations. 
He wasn't afraid to correct the disciples when they were wrong. But the disciples could receive the truth because they knew Jesus loved them. Friends, you and I have been both called and chosen to lead our children in the truth. It doesn't mean we're perfect or that we will disciple our kids perfectly, but we can rest that we are thoroughly equipped for every assignment we receive from the Lord. You can practically and effectively disciple your kids by first recognizing who your kids belong to. You might be the one given the responsibility to lead them, but they ultimately belong to God. Secondly, you have access to the Holy Spirit to empower you. This is not an individual mission. You have complete access to the helper who is readily available to offer you divine wisdom and discernment to disciple your kids. Third, be realistic. Set expectations on family devotions and prayer time that can be repeated and sustained without making an excuse of your busyness. Fourth, remember that discipleship is not a curriculum to follow, but a person's way of life. We are the primary example to our kids to demonstrate a faithful and obedient life surrendered to Christ. And fifth, discipleship demands we create a secure and loving space for growth. Our kids need to know they are loved unconditionally by us. And out of that unconditional love, we can nurture and challenge them in a way that always points them to Jesus. Don't forget, as you disciple your kids, you are lifelong disciples of the Father. Lean into Him and learn from Him. Stay in the Word and be in continual communication with Him throughout the day. As our kids are growing, it's vital that we remember to grow. Thanks so much for tuning in to Bloom today. Bloom drops a new podcast on the first Friday of the month. So if you are brand new to Bloom, we'd love for you to check us out. You can go back and listen to all of our previous ones, including the first part of this message. And if this has been a helpful resource in your growth, I'd love for you to share the content with a friend so that we can continue to grow together. See you back here next month. In the meantime, keep growing and God bless.